0: You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast. And now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. Guten Tag. Welcome back one and all to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. A podcast where we're going to do some opinion scholarship. Getting back to a little bit of that, you guys. On a topic just a little different than normal um two in a row that's two in a row that are a little bit off the beaten path for us but uh but this is the last episode of season 3 so i wanted to do something a little different and i wanted to get something in before um i mean while i could i didn't do quite as many episodes this year as i did last year for a whole host of reasons um this is going to wrap it up um Kyle was supposed to come last week um, but shit happens so so let me just try to salvage it today. We're going to talk a little bit a little bit of Charles Darwin today. So the topic will be a bit more scientific maybe than most. Um but really I think this is kind of a critique to all the atheist bullshit for lack of a better word, all the atheist arguments that I hear constantly on Twitter that are just exhausting. Um Charles Darwin and the origin of species is one of these, one of these things that is harped on um, by a lot of atheists, especially those that have never read the origin of species. And um, there's been some things that I've seen in the book that were unexpected. So I'm going to call this episode Unexpected Darwin. Um, and I'm just going to bring that to you. Um, so many atheists will say things to about the origin of species as though it was the death knell um of any kind of religious um, mainstream you know that uh, the the theory of evolution is uh put put the kibosh on any um on anybody taking the Bible seriously or the stories in the Bible seriously. And it's just so far from the truth, it's hard to even understand. It's such an uneducated position to take, and I kind of get it. There's a naivete involved in and in being young and learning, and uh, it's a strange thing. But for some people, uh, I, I know maybe it's not a strange thing. Maybe it's just that it's easier to... Um, let other people think for you it's easier to never go in and read this stuff yourself Uh, it's easier to focus on things you find interesting and just try to build on the foundations that other people have uh, left for you and so some of those foundations go unquestioned and look I'm as guilty of this as anybody Um, so what I want to do here is shake the foundations a little bit for so many materialist atheists who believe that you know the origin of species was some sort of a a some sort of a um, shift in um, our intellectual tradition away from religious perspective into this new scientific paradigm. And in some ways, it's true. And in some ways, it's not true. And the ways in which it's not true are, are not talked about. So I want to talk about them a little bit. I want to begin by talking about Charles Darwin's grandfather, a man named Erasmus Darwin. Erasmus Darwin was born in 1731. He died in 1802. Um, Charles was born in 1809. So he only had a few years of life with his grandfather, probably had very little memory of his grandfather, I would imagine. Um, you know, p- perhaps some. But what's clear is that he wasn't likely influenced intellectually by his grandfather, Erasmus. Why I bring this up is because Erasmus Darwin talked a lot about evolution in ways that Charles Darwin would would make more scientific. Erasmus Darwin was much more poetic about it, and he was an important person. Erasmus Darwin was a fellow of the Royal Society of England. He was an an intellectual. He was an academic. He was an inventor, a poet. He was a Renaissance man. He was doing everything. And, um, you know, the Darwins were a very wealthy family, a very... um, um, respected family in in England, and it's hard to get any more respected as an academic than to be a member of the uh, a fellow of the Royal Society. Um, you know, pe- people like uh, Newton, of course, were um, you know was a, was a famous fellow of the Royal Society. But every name in that list is somebody um, you know at the, at the peak of their fields scientifically, um, and so. I I want to emphasize the level of respect that Erasmus Darwin had in the academic community. And I also want to say that the church was antagonistic to him. And this was a time when the church was still very powerful and the church tried to ruin him. And I'm going to read a little bit about what he said. Now, Erasmus Darwin is not the only person um, in this early period that was talking about evolution. Um, there was a French fellow whose name is probably going to escape me now that I'm trying to think about it, um, Jean Baptiste Lamarck. So you might you might hear about Lamarckian evolution um, in contrast to uh, to Charles Darwin's theory. Uh, But there were other people in this early period that were talking about evolution. It's not like Erasmus Darwin was coming out of nowhere with this. Um, So I I, want to read some of this Erasmus stuff. But before I do, I want to tell you what Erasmus Darwin did that got him in trouble with the church was he had painted or inscribed on the sides of his... Um, carriages. So Erasmus Darwin was a wealthy man, an important man, and he had carriages, right? You, you know, in that time, it was like your car. And inscribed on his, uh, on his carriages, he wrote in Latin a phrase that means all from shells. And the church was not um, ignorant to what he was saying. What he was saying is that all life came from the sea. All life evolved from primitive things that lived in the primordial soup of the ancient world of the ancient earth, right? This is a theory that gets much more attached to, um, the science, uh, going forward from the origin of species. So from a much later time, Erasmus Orman's grand grandson wrote that book. And, um, and so the, uh, once it became, once the theory of evolution became established and much more accepted, there was a lot more development of that, uh, of that ontology, for lack of a better word, um, that that uh, was elaborated in all kinds of ways, um, and the story that we hear, the story that I was taught in science class growing up, was exactly this: that life evolved. Um, the conditions in the primordial soup, right there. We live, once the Earth was a water world, full of chemicals and components of things that are going to become eventually um, organic molecules, and then and then life forms that would eventually crawl out of the ocean um, and, and become, uh, you know, land-dwelling uh, uh, animals. And they would evolve to become human beings and so forth. That's the story that that are told. And this is what Erasmus was so bold to put on the side of his carriages, all from shells. And so the church said, uh, well, that, that clearly is a slight against... Um, God. It's clearly, you know, suggesting that God doesn't exist or um, isn't the force behind uh, the creation of, of um, a life on earth. Uh, it's, it's something about it that's not, not quite kosher, something about it that the church uh, doesn't like that seems threatening. Um, and so they try, to, they try to discredit him and they try to bury him. He wrote this strange book called, called Zoonomia, or the Laws of Organic Life. And it's just like an epic poem. Um, I bought a copy of it years ago. I tried to read it. It's really difficult to read. But I want to read to you something from Zoonomia. And just bear in mind, this is poetry. Erasmus Darwin said, Organic life beneath the shoreless waves Was born and raised in ocean's pearly caves First forms minute unseen by spheric glass move on mud, or pierce the watery mass. These, as successive generations bloom, new powers acquire, and larger limbs assume, once countless groups of vegetation spring and breathing realms of fin and feet and wing. So you see what I mean. The idea that would become Charles Darwin's theory of evolution is here in Erasmus Darwin's poetry, in Zoonomia and others beyond the poetic there was a lot a lot of things that Erasmus Darwin was writing um, a lot of you know philosophical and scientific um, writings that were very unlike what I just read to you so I want to read a little passage from it so you can kind of get the flavor he says the great creator of all things has infinitely diversified the works of his hands but has at the same time stamped a certain similitude on the features of nature that demonstrate to us that the whole is one family of one parent. So there's some interesting things going on. All of, all of life are one family of one parent. And you have something here that rings to me of this mystical unity that I like to talk about from a religious perspective, that the source of all things are one. The source of creation is one, that, that oneness we call God. But the source of life is also one. And Erasmus Darwin says exactly what Charles Darwin will say here in a bit, and we'll read it, that all life comes from one primordial form. You know, the scientific narrative is that when all this chaos and the primordial soup, the conditions, I'm going to put that in air quotes, the conditions were right. You know, this is that moment where... um the lightning bolt strikes the body of uh, Frankenstein's monster and he comes to life. This sort of miracle happens where the conditions were just so that these building blocks of life erupted into something that we call life. It wasn't alive before and suddenly now it is. And this single instance, this single miracle of life being brought ex nihilo... Then has the ability to evolve and change and adapt and become all of the creatures that we know and love. But you're also going to see that Erasmus Darwin says, "The great Creator of all things has infinitely diversified the works of His hands." He gives this evolution uh, evolutionary process an author, and that author is God, the Great Creator of all things. Now this is something that religious people tried to do after the theory of evolution became more accepted. Um, There's a word for it, again it's gonna slip my mind, like directed evolution, directed panspermia, these kind of ideas. Who's doing the directing? So these ideas indicate that the process that we see as evolution or the process that we see of life being seeded in in planets uh, like ours was directed somehow, that there was something doing that. And and the force doing that is what we would just call God, the creator, that which is responsible for life, that which is responsible for creation. That's what we mean when we say God, ultimately, fundamentally. And Charles Dorman's grandfather says that, right? This process of evolution, right? Whence countless groups of vegetation spring and breathing realms of fin and feet and wing, this is something that is This process is something that's driven by um, a designer, a creator. There's some force behind it. And this is something that we all acknowledge uh, is the definition of God. And then he talks about seeing patterns, right? He's like, we see patterns in life. Right? A human being is something like an orangutan, it's something like a chimpanzee, it's something less like a squid or an octopus. You see what I mean? There's, there's patterns in nature, groups that we seem to fall into, and those patterns tell us something about a law that is behind the process, that's moving it along. The process reflects some underlying structure, some underlying direction, some underlying laws, and that means something. It means there's something behind nature that's more than just what we mean generally when we use that word, nature. And Erasmus says it demonstrates to us that the whole, everything, all of life, the whole family tree, is of one family and one parent. That parent is, of course, that first organic being that sprang to life like Frankenstein's monster, but it's also God, the creator of all things. Ultimately, that's the one parent from which it comes. And so you can see, before we even get into uh, quotes from The Origin of Species, that Charles Darwin had an influence from his grandfather. Charles Darwin says that all life comes from this one primordial form, just like Erasmus says. Charles Darwin even uses this phrase, the creator, in The Origin of Species. Did you know that? All of the materialist atheists out there that that think Darwin was some sort of a, you know, the OG atheist or something. Did you know that he uses the word the creator in the origin of species in your atheist Bible? He does. And he talks about all sorts of other mysteries, all sorts of other unanswered questions. Um, And you might say this is a God of the gaps sort of a sort of a argument. Like what we can explain, that's what we attribute to God. Well, yeah, I suppose so. And the truth is we have learned to explain the mechanisms behind things that used to be mysteries that aren't any longer. and we no longer say, okay, well, that, that must be something we attribute to God. Fair enough. But there are mysteries still that are unanswered. And we do still generally ascribe those mysteries to God. And Charles Darwin admits them, he acknowledges them, in The Origin of Species. And that brings me to my first section, which I'm going to call The Mysteries of Mind and Life. All right, so Charles Darwin says, I must premise that I have nothing to do with the origin of the primary mental powers any more than I have with that of life itself. Fair enough. What is he saying here? He's saying the theory I'm proposing in this book, The Origin of Species, says nothing about the origin of consciousness. It doesn't explain it and can't explain it. It also says nothing about the origin of life. How did Frankenstein's monster come to life from the the proverbial lightning bolt? What was that miracle that happened that, that made organic molecules living Charles Darwin has no idea, and he doesn't claim to. And he says in the book, look, I have no idea. The theory of evolution by natural selection does not explain consciousness, and it does not explain life. And we could argue whether those two things are different, by the way, consciousness and life. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But the theory of evolution doesn't touch them. They remain, even to Darwin, some kind of a miracle. He has a whole chapter in in The Origin of Species that talks about instinct. And instinct is something that's fascinating to me. It's like when people say that, um, but there's been experiments to this effect, but that uh, uh, birds, I think maybe they're chickens or some kind of birds, um, that when they're born, uh, there was an experiment where they took these wooden cutouts of the shape of different types of birds and they hung them on a line and they just pulled you know pulled them across this like chicken coop area and these newly hatched chicks would not respond to the shadow of uh, you know a pelican or an owl or a, or a goose or something but the moment you showed them the shadow of like a chicken hawk or an eagle or something that might be a predator to them these little chickens see the shadow and they freak out. They run for cover. They've never seen it done before. They've never seen the shadows before. But they know instinctively that they're in danger when they see them, as though it was programmed right into them from the very beginning. What in the world is responsible for something like that? Another example was the newborn, newborn baby. Um thrown into a pool of water or born in in a water birth scenario or something like that and the human baby instinctively floats and and rolls over onto its back rather than remaining on its belly where it will drown it instinctively rolls over on its back and floats it just knows how to do it it's never seen it done it doesn't have any idea it just knows how these sorts of instincts are very difficult to explain and you would think they would you know from a uh, from a the perspective of, of evolution that there must be some mechanism for that 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 you know uh, that they've inherited or or built upon but but it's really it's impossible and so this quote goes like this an action which we ourselves should require experience to enable us to perform when performed by an animal without any experience, and without their knowing for what purpose it is performed. He says, comparing instinct with habit gives a remarkably accurate notion of the frame of mind under which an instinctive action is performed, but not of its origin. How unconsciously many habitual actions are performed. See, so Darwin is saying here that there's really no explanation for how an instinct is there in the first place. What's, how could you explain the origin of an instinct? It's not been learned. But the types of activities that I just described to you are things that must be learned. Either by uh, having that experience in learning from your own prior experience or seeing it demonstrated in learning from somebody else's. Those sorts of sophisticated behaviors have to be learned. At least, it certainly would be the case for a human being, you would think. But not with animals, not with these creatures that are operating unconsciously. They're not self-reflective. They're not self-conscious. You know, seemingly they're not learning from others. Um, although we see, we see evidence of, uh, um, of chimpanzees that, that seem to be able to learn skills from other watching other chimpanzees, um, you know, things like that. But animals generally are acting unconsciously in a way that where we're acting consciously. You know, we sort of decide what to do and animals seem to respond rather. It's it's more like just responding to the conditions that they find themselves in. And so this idea that that instincts are unconscious and unlearned is some sort of a mystery. It indicates that there's some mystery about Whatever it means, whatever this word unconsciousness means, what is that? It's some mystery also. It's some mystery that I, of course, link to, to the idea of God. Um, Darwin doesn't exactly do that, but certainly acknowledges that there's a mystery to it, that, that instincts seem to be unconscious. They seem to be there without an explanation. They're not evolved. And that brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call... The mystery of evolution. Okay, so Darwin describes his theory. He describes it by, by calling it descent with modifications through natural selection. And I just want to focus on this half of a sentence for a second descent with modifications through natural selection. So descent implies something that is inherited. Something that is given down to um, to the next generation, to the to the you know to your children, let's say, and um, that what is carried on. You know, we might talk about a genetic inheritance or um, maybe a psychological inheritance, like the like the archetypes, if we're talking from a Jungian perspective. Um, that we that those things kind of flow from us uh, and travel through space and time to the next generation, where it's going to be carried on even after we're gone, but not carried on, not copied exactly, right? There's modifications. Um, my DNA mixes with my wife's, and so my children get some sort of varied version. It's not identical to mine. Uh, maybe our, our, even our, our psychological um, uh, mechanism um, is not going to be entirely identical. People have different personalities, different aptitudes. So there's always variation involved with this descent. Descent with modifications, through natural selection. So natural selection implies, well, it implies that nature selects, which is a very strange thing to say about nature. Um, To select seems like a conscious uh, or willful act. It seems like something we would attribute to um, creatures with will like us, like ourselves. Um, it's hard to talk about nature that way unless we're talking about it from this sort of primitive perspective of nature as some sort of a divinity uh, but of course charles darwin doesn't do that the reason i harp on this so much is because this reminds me of lots of things we talk about all the time descent with modifications through natural selection do you remember when we talked about the mandelbrot set when we talked about fractal mathematics being associated with nature, the forms that we see in nature, you know, the fractal branching patterns of a tree, or the fractal branching patterns uh, within our lungs, or the blood vessel systems in our bodies, or you know, whatever it might be, the spirals of shells and uh, spirals of galaxies, and all these sorts of fractal patterns that we see in nature, the Mandelbrot set demonstrates that that, that fractal magic um, in a formula that involves feedback. Right, So the solution to one run through the equation gets fed back in as the starting point of the next. And so you have this sort of cycle, right? this mathematical uh, infinity that gets created in that process. And, and you have the input feeding back on itself. So you have this process of feedback, which I described as self-experience. Feedback is a signal being fed back onto itself, reflecting back onto itself. And you get this in, infinite pattern. And that's what you see in, in fractal geometry. You see infinity. But not just infinity. When we, when we think about the Mandelbrot set, we do see a pattern within a pattern within a pattern within a pattern forever. We do see infinity. But not just that. We see transformation in the process. The Mandelbrot set doesn't just create uh, the same pattern that it came from, it creates all sorts of novelty, all sorts of new patterns within itself. Right, that's descent with modifications. Right, that what we're describing in evolution is the same sort of pattern that that the Mandelbrot set is describing—the same fractal pattern we see in in the forms of nature. Descent. With modifications. Now, when he says through natural selection, this I think is is a reference to this idea of self-experience um, or this idea of process, like the process metaphysics we talk about with uh, with Alfred North Whitehead um, in the past. So, self-experience is something like a process feeding back on itself. Right? It, 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 to experience yourself is a pattern being fed back on that same pattern, and it creates is ongoing process. It creates this infinite back and forth. So I would describe this from my own mystical sort of narrative as God's self-experience. God experiencing itself. That experience being the origin being fed back on itself. This is this this is the separation that the the biblical story of Genesis talks about. You know, creation is the separation of the the unity the oneness that we call god such that it can then experience itself and that experience creates this infinite fractal process this descent with modifications and so natural selection to me seems to be nature experiencing itself so you would say let's say you put me um on a on a desert island um i am nature i am i am in creation of nature um, you put me on this desert island, which is itself a creation of nature. And I have to learn to survive on that in this new environment. And my body will adapt and my behaviors will adapt so that I can survive here in this new place with these new predators, with these new resources that I'm not accustomed to. And there's all kinds of potential in my DNA, all that junk DNA that can become activated and do things that I, you know, I didn't have any idea was, was a potential lying within me. You know, like they, they talk about taking a domesticated pig and putting it out in the wild. And within a short order, it grows all this thick hair. It starts growing tusks again. This strange, strange shit that never would have happened if it would have been stay, stayed in the barn, right? It's in a new environment, and this new potential is brought out of it. And what you have here is nature experiencing itself, right? The pig or myself experiencing this new environment, you get this you get this fractal process nature experiencing itself the same pattern that 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 became or or drove the creation of me as a human being that that natural order that that the laws of physics essentially is the same laws that that created the conditions the environment that i find myself in and so putting me in that environment is allowing me this representation of nature to experience the environment a representation of nature a pattern within a pattern, and you get the same fractal mathematics we see in the Mandelbrot set. And you could describe it exactly like Darwin has done. Descent with modifications through natural selection. Amazing. All right, then he says, nature acts on the organization and causes variability, but man can and does Select the variations given to him by nature. Okay, so nature acts on the organization. Nature acts on the life form, and that's that. That's that. Uh, that fractal process we just talked about. That process of self-experience, and that causes variability. Those are the modifications that Darwin talked about. That's the novelty, that, that the newness that it, that is generated by that by that self-experience. And he says, but man also selects. And it reminds me of that of the way the Bible describes man as being created in the image of God. Right? Nature or God is selecting. It's doing that before mankind is even is even here. We, have, we haven't even come on the scene yet. And there's there's this interaction, this back and forth between nature and itself, causing things to change and transform, causing the conditions to change, causing life to to, to change. And and eventually life becomes capable of doing what God does, of selecting, right? So then man begins to select. And I think what's common between the selection of nature and the selection of man, if you, if you believe or if you will entertain my own sort of mystical insights is, is consciousness. That consciousness plays a role in the selection this is much like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which suggests that consciousness collapses the wave function. Consciousness is involved in creating a fixed reality out of this field of potential. This is something like what happens when nature selects. And it's the same sort of process, right? If, nature is, is, if God is consciousness, which is something that mystic, mystical people will say, and I am also consciousness... There's some sort of parity between natural selection and my own. Then he says, why, if man can select variations useful to himself, should nature fail in selecting variations useful under changing conditions of life to her living products? I can see no limit to this power. Right? and. And that fractal process is infinite. The Mandelbrot set is infinite, and evolution can create an infinite, um, an, an infinite stream of novelty. The universe is going to continue to change and, tra- and transform, and so will life, infinitely. The power is limitless. And again, this connects this connects the idea of of natural selection with with artificial selection or human selection said, if man can select the things that are useful to him, well, can't we say that there's an analogy there that nature is selecting that which is useful for it? Well, what could that mean? What, what would be useful to nature that it should select it? It seems to be that thing which allows novelty to continue, that thing which allows life to continue and can, to continue transforming that thing which allows experience to continue, the self-experience that I'm talking about as the driver of the process of nature, as the driver of that, of that fractal magic. Then he says, This grand fact of the grouping of all organic beings seems to me utterly inexplicable on the theory of creation. Nature is prodigal in variety, though niggard in innovation. Why should this be a law of nature if each species has been independently created? No man can explain. All right, so credit where credit is due. Here's where the atheists begin to see support for their position. What Darwin is doing here is directly objecting to the theory of creation, to the model of creation. He says this grand fact of the grouping of all organic beings seems utterly inexplicable if we believe that God created the way the Bible suggests. Okay, So he's pushing back on this. The grouping of organic beings just means that we seem to have similarities to each other in different ways. You you can categorize us. Mammals, amphibians, reptiles. You see what I mean? We, there's ways of grouping us together by similarities which implies that we have some common origin different from one another and the fact that you can do that the fact that you can see the similarities across all this diversity means that they came from this this line of descent where they have something in common that allowed them to be in this group and that couldn't that couldn't happen if god if god poofed the animals into existence the way it says in the Bible Why should we have any similarities if the horse was made like this and the cow was made like this and the human being was made like that, independent of each other? There's something wrong about that. He says, I should infer from analogy that all the organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form into which life was first breathed. Let me read that again. I should infer from analogy that all organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form. Let me repeat Erasmus Darwin when he said, The great creator of all things has infinitely diversified the works of his hands, but has at the same time stamped a certain similitude on the features of nature, that demonstrate to us that the whole is one family of one parent. You see? It's exactly the same thing. All organic beings which have ever lived descended from one primordial form. But here's where I want to put a twist on it. Because this idea that all life came from this one source and and transformed and changed down the ages to create the diversity we see, that's in direct contrast to the biblical story. But listen closely to what Charles Darwin says. All the organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form into which life was first breathed. And that's some kind of giveaway. The form into which life was breathed is a reference to the book of Genesis, where God creates the clay form of Adam and breathes the spirit of God, his own His own spirit, the Rauch Arunai, into the form to bring it to life. And Charles Darwin is suggesting whatever this one primordial form was, this first living creature that that was the the embryo that would become all the rest, it wasn't living and became living by some miracle, by life being breathed into it. So life had a singular origin. Life itself wasn't evolved, but occurred once as some novel miracle upon which the process of evolution could then act upon. But life itself is still a miracle, a mystery. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the mystery of physics. All right, this is my favorite. I saved it for last for that reason. Charles Darwin says this. To my mind, it accords better with what we know of the laws impressed on matter by the Creator that the production and extinction of the past and present inhabitants of the world should have been due to secondary causes like those determining the birth and death of the individual. So what is he saying? What is he saying here? He's saying that secondary causes that all this, this interaction uh, with, with living beings and their environment, this back-and-forth process that, that creates the fractal magic, the thing that we call nature, he said that is what causes the species that exist, the diversity that we see in the world. That's what we see as the process behind the transformation of that one primordial living thing into all the diversity that we see today. And that, to him, accords better with what we know of the laws impressed on matter by the creator. So when we look at physics, when we look at the laws impressed on matter, it should be, it aligns better with that, with that primordial scientific fact. That what drives the species transforming throughout time is our causes like that this interaction with its environment, rather than being poofed individually into existence. And he said that aligns better with what we know of God than this simple myth of the species being created individually. And notice that Charles Darwin says, just like his grandfather did, the laws impressed on matter by the Creator, with a capital C, by the way, Creator with a capital C, he means God, and there's no doubt about it. So he's saying, my, th- my theory of evolution by natural selection is more in line with what we know of God and what God has done than what we see in the Bible. That doesn't say God doesn't exist. Does it? And that brings me to my conclusion. Okay. So was Darwin an atheist. What do you think? He did critique the biblical idea of the individual creation of each species, and in no uncertain terms. But did he discount the idea of creation itself, of God? It would seem not. In spite of the fact that the church tried to suppress and discredit his esteemed grandfather, Charles respectfully uses the capital C when speaking of the creator. The mere fact that he uses the phrase the creator is evidence of his theism. Charles can be read as a kind of apologist, if you ask me, as a man defending the idea of God in a day when science first threatened to dethrone him. I know the materialist Materialist atheists out there are sneering right now. Let them sneer. The truth is that their great hero, the man who supposedly replaced the myth of creation with a theory of evolution, was doing no such thing. So then, what was he doing? He was adapting the scriptures to the evidence accumulated by natural science. He was synthesizing revelation and reason. He was taking the mythopoetic expressions of the Bible and showing how they can and should be interpreted. It is always a danger to interpret myths literally, after all. What myths communicate are always something deeper than what lies on the surface. Characters and actions in our myths both are something and mean something. And these two facets aren't identical, nor are they supposed to be. They're symbols, and symbols require interpretation. As for the evidence that Charles Darwin left room, even in his theory, for God, I offer his own words. He tells us that his theory has, quote, nothing to do with the origin of mental powers any more than with life itself, and that life was, quote, breathed into matter. Next, he acknowledges the origin of instincts, unlearned and unevolved, from, quote, the unconscious. Even as he describes evolution as a mechanism of nature, he describes them as, quote, the laws impressed on matter by the creator. So clearly, Darwin saw a divine power or structure behind the mystery of consciousness, the mystery of life, and of the instincts of living things. He acknowledges an architect as author of the laws of physics, which act upon living things as natural selection. Nature and its laws, to Darwin, are evidence of something more, something behind them as their cause and origin. Nature is, but it also selects. This is an action that requires an actor. In some cases, that actor is us. But in most, it is something unseen, unknown, unconscious. To the atheist, I ask, what name do we give for this mystery?